Our scripture reading today comes from the eighth chapter of the book of Luke, verses 9 through 14. This is the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. We have heard it many times, and it's easy to condemn the Pharisee for his pride. It's important to remember that the Pharisee was a righteous man in Jesus' and Luke's time. He followed the rules, but he lost track of following God. Have we ever said in our pride about someone who is down on their luck, there but for the grace of God go I? This parable is about the Pharisee in each of us. Luke 11, 9 through 14. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. The word of God for the people of God. Let us pause for a word of prayer. O God, ground your preacher this morning. Make your word heard. May the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. Our Redeemer and our Rock. Amen. So this is the final sermon in our series of Tending Our Souls. I really liked this, this uh, theme for our first part of the year. I really like the idea of tending the soil, tending our souls. And we've looked at tending rest and peace and relationships and faith. And today we look at tending our worship. But first, first thing you've got to do, though, in tending your worship is attend. So y'all got a big star in that area. (laughs) So in our text today, we have a parable about two people praying in the temple. Many a sermon have been preached on this text, and the common theme is humility versus pride. Parables are to be heard without explanation or allegory, taken to heart so that the meaning can have, may change from hearing to hearing or generation to generation. But Luke doesn't trust us to get the message, so he sets the parable up to be a message to those who trusted themselves in righteous and judged others. Over the years, we have come to read the Pharisee as the bad guy and the tax collector as the good guy. But that's not how the first hearers of the parable heard it. Pharisees were the liberal interpreters of the text with the purpose of making the Torah available to all. 
Tax collectors were the ones who betrayed the community by conspiring with the Roman occupiers so that they could benefit themselves. The twist to the parable is having the tax collector go home justified, forgiven, saved from his sins. The final sentence says, He who exalts himself will be humbled, while he who humbles himself will be exalted. Well, we are both of those people, the Pharisee and the tax collector. Sometimes we're just a little puffed up about ourselves, but it's okay to celebrate achievements. And you don't have to be self-loathing to be humble. Groveling worm theology may have had its time, but it doesn't fit a culture that includes people oppressed for generations. What resonates with us today is the mistake of comparison. Thank you, Facebook. The Pharisee was fine until he said, thank God I'm not that guy. Of course, it goes both ways. Somebody might say, I wish I was that guy. What if the parable for us today sounded more like this? Two people are in church praying. First person is dressed in a silk suit with expensive Italian leather loafers. The second person is sitting with their head bowed, quietly weeping. The quietly weeping person is dressed in worn clothing that doesn't quite match. And the first person notices because they are standing in the back observing while they pray. When they notice the weeping person, they say to themselves, There, for the grace of God, go I. They think, I didn't, if I didn't have my six-figure earning, my college and graduate school education, my inheritance that helped me pay for that education, that's probably where I would be right now. I wouldn't be able to be one of the top givers of the congregation. I wouldn't be able to retire early and donate my time to help others. Thank God I have been blessed. Meanwhile, the softly crying person does their moral inventory and finds themselves lacking. Forgive me, God, for judging that person standing at the door as a pompous ass. That's not very Christian of me. I don't know their story and I can't make assumptions. So in the gospel, according to Jackie, they all go out for coffee together. I read this parable today to be more about the comparison and the judgment than pride and humility. Luke shapes this parable for his people because the early church was a collection of diverse cultures trying to come together as a community. Some were steeped in the tradition of the Pharisees where the way to be righteous was to follow the law. And yet those who survived the exile and the diaspora knew that sometimes it was impossible to follow the law. Their experience developed a culture of survival, like the tax collector. Culture to humans is like water is to fish. We swim in it, we breathe it, we don't even recognize it's there until it's gone. And culture shifts are like being a fish out of water. That's what the early church was like. Thomas H. Troger, in his book, Preaching and Worship, outlines how our expectations of worship and preaching are shaped by culture and fall prey to the same comparisons and judgments. Culture is the process by which meaning is produced, contended for, and continually renegotiated 
within individual and communal identities. What we think of as the natural way of doing things is really learned behavior transmitted by society, not by our genes. Another way Troger defines culture is to call it a constellation of ritual behaviors by which adults conduct their lives and pass culture on to their children. Psychologist Eric Erickson contends that we may become human by learning the ritual repertoire of human community. He continues to warn that when a culture loses the gift of imparting values by meaningful ritualization, the result is neuroses, social disorder, chaos, and conflict. So ritual is really important. And worshiping in a society of multiple cultures and multiple ritual traditions is tricky. Let's take, for instance, the ritual of passing of the peace that we just did. Since we are reconciled to God through our confession and assurance of pardon, we are also reconciled to one another and we pass the peace. For some, the passing of the peace is a handshake. For others, it's a hug. And for some of us, it's a kiss on the cheek. How many of you are handshakers? How many are huggers? Any kissers out there? (laughs) Sometimes. It's cultural. And for those who are handshakers, someone coming in for a hug, not to mention a kiss, may feel like the violation of their personal space. And for huggers and kissers, someone offering a hand may feel kind of cold and distant. But they are neither. What is the solution? All you handshakers have to go to 8.30 service and the huggers go to 11. That's not going to solve anything. Better that we become sensitive to body language or even ask before we handshake, hug, or kiss. That is the negotiation of culture within a community. Yes, some are still uncomfortable, but understanding that we as a congregation recognize one another as siblings in Christ is important. Reconciling ourselves to one another is a key value and one we want to express in our service of worship. We also value extravagant welcome. Then how do we expand the church's culture to include those who feel left out by our practices that seem so normal to us? To attend our worship, we become aware of our body sensations and feelings during worship. What values are we trying to express in our liturgy of worship? From invoking the presence of God to silence, responsive prayer, lay liturgists, varieties of music, etc. As diversity enriches our practice, can we adapt by honoring the common values of all of those practices? One example is movement or dance in worship. Our Eurocentric background from the Roman and Greek philosophers considered God the unmoved mover. (laughs) To honor God and worship involved the mind and listening and stillness and very little body movement. Music developed in that culture involved complex harmony and, and melody. Yet other parts of the world considered God the creator of all things and a constant change in motion. Their music developed around a drum beat and compelled the worshipers to move as a way of joining the Creator. In our blended worship style, we more often favor the Eurocentric side, 
But there is drumming and movement as ways that we stretch our worship experience to include our body. And even our bell ringers dance to the beat of the music. And that's acceptable worship. One of the most controversial among the Christian church, even today, is women preachers. I grew up not ever seeing a woman preach or lead worship. I went to seminary to follow wherever God would lead me, but I was sure it wasn't in front of a church on Sunday morning. I thought I'd be a missionary, so I did my internship as a chaplain at a home for emotionally disturbed adolescents. I avoided preaching classes until I couldn't any longer. My academic advisor suggested I take preaching classes and do my last year of internship in a local church. Oh, all right. I was fighting my own resistance for being raised in a culture of male leadership. I remember sleepless nights and knocking knees. But I discovered God had something to say through my life. The church internship confirmed my call to ministry. And my boyfriend at the time broke up with me. He said he couldn't be married to someone who led a church. I wasn't even sure there was a church out there that would take me. Was there a church there who would call me? Surprise! (laughs) There was a church in Dayton, Ohio. I served there for seven years. There was a church in Colorado Springs, too, in fact. My body finally relinquished the cultural resistance. And the communities that saw and heard me were changed, too. These struggles of resistance come from 2,000 years of ambivalence about the place of the female body in church. God has created us to be adaptable, though. And half of the world's population now has a voice in some churches. Imagine the benefits from hearing the voices of LGBTQ people in our pulpits. We have so much to learn. We can express our values by claiming at the beginning of worship that we are an open and affirming, just peace church of extravagant welcome, openness to wonder, and positive and proactive witness to the possibility of a just world. You can't even say that without taking a breath. That's hard to do. We attempt to express those values in, in our worship. But it isn't easy because most of us come from different traditions. Lutherans who sing beautiful hymnody cringe at Tizay chants and praise music. Baptists, look for the baptismal tank. I wonder how you can fit somebody in that little bowl. (laughs) And Catholics seek a quiet pew where they don't have to interact too boisterously with their neighbors. Avoid the choir. (laughs) For most of us, it was planted in childhood. Some we hold in with, we hold on to some of them with sentimentality. And others we reject and look for alternatives. What enriches us and why? We will see the diverse methods of worship from raising our hands as a way of receiving God's blessing to wiggling our fingers, which is a silent applause in sign language. Sometimes we will break out in applause to the chagrin of those who equate applause with performance. God is not bound to a single culture's mode. There is stillness and motion, silence and sound, ceremony and spontaneity, provided it is offered from the heart as an act of genuine worship and praise. 
Mother Teresa reminds us in a quote, when you judge, you have no time to love. We claim to be a just peace church, and we can't do that without attempting to understand our differences and to question our assumptions and judgments. It starts with worship. Worship is the primary work of the church that informs our relationships, our faith, our peace, our rest. It prepares our service and mission, our education and faith formation, our business meetings, and our governance. The purpose of worship is to put us in touch with the values of our culture, with the source of power and the energy of God. In Vatican II, we read that the task of the church is to uncover and cherish, enable all that is good and true and beautiful in human community. That makes sense. Intending our worship is listening to our bodies, hearing, feeling, smelling, seeing, thinking, moving in the presence of God through the beauty of a diverse and ever-changing world. Tending our worship is tending our soul when we come and participate with our whole selves. And we will find there's plenty of room for both Pharisees and tax collectors alike. Come, let us continue to tend our souls in worship. Amen.